Indian River Walk-In Clinic was voted best urgent care two years in a row. Why? Because it is the best. With great providers, convenient hours, great location, a staff that cares, Indian River Walk-In Clinic Miracle Mile has a 95% patient satisfaction rate. Best part is Indian River Walk-In Clinic is moving to a brand new space twice the size, just a few doors down from their present location. So if you need fast, friendly medical care, visit Indian River Walk-In Clinic Miracle Mile Plaza. They'll make you feel better now. Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone. Whether you're listening to me live right now or on the iTunes Stitcher podcast, um, welcome, welcome, welcome. And I am so grateful for all of you as we enter into spring this year. For me, um, I really feel like I have sprung. I feel a spark again with a lot of things that I am working on. And I'm just really excited to see what the the next couple of months bring for myself and for my listeners. So please let me know what's going on for you and, and what sparked you to get excited. And um, in reference to that sparking and getting excited and just creating, one of the things that I've always felt is so really important for anybody that is creative. And, you know, the other day we had on my show somebody and we talked about creative types, you know, that it's not just authors. Um, Ken Heron was on and we talked about social media for authors, but it's really more than just authors it's anybody that's creating content and that really got me thinking about how do you protect the content that you create can you just protect your idea or does there have to be more to it enter in my guest today the amazing jason webb now jason is an intellectual property attorney and the founder of jp webb he has but this is the historical part i just love this total geekdom right now folks he has a Bachelor of Science degree in Applied Physics and Computational Modeling from Brigham Young University, where he assisted in experimental laser physics and cancer research. He has deep experience in patent, trademark, and copyright law. He has successfully negotiated licensing agreements and settlement agreements for his clients with Fortune 500 companies. And every time I talk to him, every time I see him, he makes me smile. This man has such a great essence to him. His soul just sparks and shines. So I am so honored to have him on the show. So welcome to the show, Jason. Uh, thanks, Laura. Awesome. So I don't understand how somebody goes from physics to law. <laughs> you yeah, have to explain uh, this. <laughs> so, so that was not the original plan. Um, the original plan was to get a PhD in physics and teach at a university and do... Um, do my experiments and have lots of fun with that. Um, and uh, but I've always I've always been sort of a universalist as far as the, you know the reason why I love physics so much is because it's the foundation for understanding everything. And um, and understanding everything is something that is really important to me. And as I went further and further in, in my physics education, then um, I felt like I was getting less of that, more narrowed. And I was uh, talking about that to a friend of mine who was going to law school at the time. And they said, oh, Jason, I've uh, been meaning to tell you this for months. You should be a patent attorney. It's perfect for you. You know, go check it out. And so I did. And, uh, and uh, it, it just caught me. And I realized that you know, as a patent attorney, then I would be experiencing 
lots of different kinds of inventions and lots of different technology areas and um, and my job would you know would be to help broaden out these ideas and flesh them out and uh, and that's just been great and I'm and I love it so yeah I wouldn't have thought that patent the process of being a patent attorney and and all of that would feed that love of everything you know to patent attorney mm-hmm. to me conjures up an idea of very strict boundaries of what you can mm-hmm. do because you're dealing yeah. with government and physics mm-hmm. you know at, at some level physics is kind of governed by a universal law right but you can yeah. kind of go in a bunch of different directions with it um, and since you're talking about schools there's probably a lot of politics what exactly is it that said patent law was it over a different kind of law then oh well i i could never have been a family law attorney um i I mean with patent law i there's the science and i love science right um i'm also surrounded by people who are creative they're positive they're wanting to make a difference in the world they you know my, my clients have this real good positive energy to them you could say and um, and I love that, and and, I, and and then you know that mixed with the science is just is just great for me. Um, as far as the rules go, um, yeah, there's a lot of rules. The the manual for the patent examination procedures is ten thousand pages long, and uh, but I've always been really good at reading, and I've always been really good at understanding and remembering rules, and so that you know that that's not scary to me. That's exciting. That's a fun challenge. Um, and then you add on top of that, you know, the trademark work that I do and copyright work and the licensing. And um, it, there's this kind of overarching architecture that I can understand makes sense to me. And that, you know, helps me do a good job. So, All right. So you, you just threw a whole bunch of terms out there that, for, <laughs> you know, for some of us, okay, we get the oh, difference yeah. between mm-hmm. patent and trademark and copyright and, and all of that stuff. But yeah. let's let's take a step back. All right. Mm-hmm. What is the essential difference between, say, a patent, a copyright, trademark? Let's define those terms so we're all on the same page. Yeah. So, so first of all, in the bigger picture, they're all forms of intellectual property. And, and if you take a step back even more, then they're all forms of property. And property is something that we as a culture have just made up. Um, there's nothing real about property. It's just we've decided that as a culture that it makes sense for us to have rules that say that someone can have exclusive rights to something, you know, that that I can go park my car in the parking lot and when I come back it's still there because other people don't have the right to just take it and leave with it, right? Um, Most other people don't feel they have the right to take it. Well, as a culture, right? As right. individual peoples, maybe we disagree with the culture. But, um, but anyway, so, so, so look, zooming back in, then, of the kinds of property that there are, there are kinds of property that you can touch and feel, like a car, like a chair, like a hotel, right? And you can own something physical, and you can touch it and point to it and say, I own that. There are other kinds of property where we've just made up rules because we've decided that that we want people to own kinds of property that you can't touch and feel. And so that's the intellectual property. And so then of those kinds, then we have made decisions about 
what are those kinds of non-physical things that we can own. And that's where the patents, trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets come in. So the differences between them are that patents are about protecting, protecting structure and function of ideas. So things like gadgets, things like uh, methods of manufacturing, things like software, the way that the software operates, not the code itself, right, but how the software operates. And so, so we're looking at protecting functional things. And, and it's not the thing itself that's protected. It's the, idea of, of, it's the idea of how it functions. So then, um, you know, if I, if I have a patent on a product, I can sell you the product, and you can own the physical product, but you don't own the right to then create more, to use that idea to then create more. Right, I own the right to do that. So that's that's on the patent side. Okay. On the trade on the trademark side, then what we've decided is that it makes sense to protect the channel between customers and uh, merchants, right? And by merchants, I mean anybody that's selling a product or service. And if you look at the history of how that was developed. It's, it's not actually to protect the merchants. It's not to, to, to protect the business people. It's to protect the consumers. And so um, what we don't want is we don't want consumers being tricked. We don't want them being confused. We don't want someone to hear about, you know, this product is really good. They then go and go buy that product. Someone tricks them into buying some other product, and then it's not good, right? And so that's... That's what trademark law is all about, is protecting. And the way that it works is we protect branding. So logos, um, taglines, uh, anything that is sort of a connection between uh, some sort of a, they call it a source indicator. So, so that's what trademark is all about. Okay, so, so let, me, let me just, let's sure. take one step back yeah. there on that one. So for trademark, um, would this be a good example? I remember growing up, um, Every time we made a copy of something in a machine, we'd say, I'm going to make a Xerox. And then other mm-hmm. people created other forms of copiers that were not made by Xerox. And there was this whole um, hullabaloo about, well, you can't say you're making a Xerox if you're not using it on a Xerox machine because right. that implied a certain kind of way of doing it. Yeah, and, and that's a great example of how the whole trademark system is not designed to protect. I mean, it, it, it does give protection to the merchants, but it's not designed to protect the merchants. It's designed to protect the public. And so what the whole hullabaloo there was is that if your brand name stops meaning your brand and starts just meaning the product itself, then you lose your trademark because the public has taken the name away from you. And trademark law says the public's more important than the merchant. And so that's why, I mean, even still today, you'll see, um, you know, you'll see ads from Xerox or even other companies where they say, you know, Xerox is a brand. Xerox is our company. Xerox is not the product itself, right? Xerox is not a copy. Xerox is not um, a, a verb, Okay. Um, same sort of thing, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola will send people into restaurants and say that where they know that that restaurant doesn't serve Coke. And they'll order a Coke. And if the waiter comes back and gives them a Pepsi, right, then 
then they send a letter to the to the restaurant saying you can't do that because they don't want Coke to mean a cola. They want Coke to mean a cola from the Coca-Cola company. And so it's really important. All right. So it's really important to protect what your brand means and how it is perceived out there in the world. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. And yeah. then the patent portion is the actual physical item or the workings well, the of it or of- the manufacturing process. So it's more yeah. a thing versus a, 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 a brand, an intellectual brand. We're going to go into a commercial, and then when we come back, we'll go into your third one, which is intellectual property. So we'll be right back with more from Jason Webb, talking about patents, copyrights, trademarks, and how to protect your thoughts. We'll be right back. And we are back. And, and a shout-out to all those fans listening on iHeartRadio, um, on your iPhones, on your Androids, um, or at your computer, or sometimes even in your car listening via iHeart. Um, don't forget, you can always catch us from 11 to 12 live on iHeartRadio. So, um, Jason, we were talking about patents, and mm-hmm. we also talked about trademarks. And then the last one seems so much more nebulous. That's why I kind of let in with um, how you can you know, protect your thoughts. That's what people tend to think you can do with intellectual property. Can you talk to us about what is intellectual property? Yeah, sure. So... Intellectual property is uh, property that you can't see or touch. It has it has some connection with ideas, um, but there there's a specific form that it takes, and and that's what we're allowed to protect. So, like with patents, we're allowed to protect function and structure, ideas that have function and structure. There's some usefulness to them, and they're new and unique. With trademarks, we are protecting this idea of a brand that connects us with. You know, we have a product or service. Who is it that provided that product or service? We want to know because it's important that we have trust, right, in, in our commercial relationships. And then when we go to copyright, then you're talking about taking an idea, which might be a story, it might be a, a sculpture, it might be art, it might be, um, you know, web page design, graphic art, uh, it might be music, right, any of these creative creative works that we do, and we, we have taken some idea, and we've given it form through that creative work. And so, you know, if you, if, if, you, if you think about it, we don't want to stop people from using ideas, right? An idea would be love story, you know, boy meets girl, they don't like each other, they end up going through a difficult time, and then grow to love each other, right? We don't want someone to own that idea. But what we are willing to do is we're willing to let someone do a screenplay and make a movie about that. And then the movie that they made with those characters and those actions and those circumstances, um, that's what we're willing to protect and, and what we want people to do. So, so we've, we've sort of drawn a line between ideas that we can't protect right, that are just too universal and it's too important that we be able to share them as compared to ideas that, that we are willing to let people own and so that we feel like there's a benefit. So it's not just so, a concept, it's an implementation of a concept. Perfect, yes. Okay. All right, so how do you know if you actually have IP? How do you know if it's a concept or an implementation of a concept? 
Right. Well, if you if you feel like you have created something that is new and unique or different, special in some way, then just that gut feeling is a good indication that you probably have. Um, one thing you can do with that is you can go talk to an intellectual property attorney and say, hey, you know, here's my idea, here's my business idea, or here's my creative idea, and I want to do something with this. Is there some protection there? Is there something I can you know, do to, to give myself protection so I can enter the business world or enter the creative world um, you know, knowing that, that I'll have some control over it? Um, so that's one thing that you can do. Um, yeah. Okay, so you, say somebody has gone out and spoken to somebody like yourself, who, by the way, everybody, I highly recommend Jason. <laughs> if you have any questions around intellectual property and patents and trademarks, that's just my little kudo to you, Jason. Um, all right, so you've gone to an attorney, you've presented your idea. Is it a very involved process to copyright things? I mean, I, I've seen some people, I've done it myself. You just put the little copyright symbol and write copyright the year and, and your name or your company name at the bottom of a proposal or something like that. Does that really protect you? Uh, it, it kind of does. There's there's sort of two stages or two levels to copyright protection. One of them is there's an automatic one. And um, literally, I have, a, so I have a daughter, and she's seven, um, and if she takes my crayons that I bought with my money and she writes on my walls of my house that I own, um, then she owns the copyright rights to what she drew on my walls. And if I take a photo of that and I put it on Facebook, then technically I violated her copyright rights. Okay? Um, now, her damages are nothing, right? Because she wasn't making money off of it. And the most she could ever do if she were to sue me, right, would be to get me to take the, the picture down and to promise to not do it again, okay? And that's the problem with that automatic level of copyright rights is that for you to actually get justice if something happens, then you have to prove that they damaged you, you have to sue them, you have to, um, you know, prove that it was you, prove that they shouldn't have done it, and typically the most you can get at the end of the day is to get them to stop, right? And that's not much of an incentive for you to go after them, and it's not much of an incentive for them to stop stealing from you. So what we have instead is that second level, and that's the copyright registration. So if you register your creative works with the copyright office, then if you were to sue somebody for stealing it, then you could get up to $150,000 per copyright that's infringed. Okay, if you have multiple copyrights and they infringe multiple, you can get more. But the key is, is that it's up to $150,000 in damages, and you don't have to prove that they actually damaged you that much. It's sort of a penalty or a punitive thing. And it's a way for the judge to say, well, I think that it was this big of a problem. I think it was a $70,000 problem, and so you have to pay $70,000 for what you did. And what that does is that makes it a much bigger incentive for people to not steal um, creative works from other people and to, you know, get permission in advance and that sort of a thing. Can you say something like, I didn't know it was copyrighted? I mean, people steal, take images all the time from the web and, and use on their different things. I know Getty Images is infamous for going after people, rightly so. Right, yeah. So it, saying I didn't know 
um, well, there's two pieces to that that you should know. One is saying that I don't know doesn't get you off the hook for the, the base damages, which is what I just talked about. It gets you off the hook for, and, and if it's true, right, if they can prove that you actually did know or you should have known, then it doesn't help you at all. But there's enhanced damages and there's attorney's fees, and so there's extra extra bad that can happen to you if you willfully infringed on someone else's copyright rights. So saying I didn't know is helpful, but you're still on the hook. Um, one of the reasons why it's really important to put that copyright notice on photos that you post online or your website or you know anything creative you develop is that that copyright symbol is constructive notice, meaning it, it is if someone takes it, Right, and you can prove that they took it from a version that had the copyright notice, then they can no longer say, I didn't know, and have a stick. Because, well, the copyright notice was there. So you knew it belonged to somebody, and, it, and you knew that that wasn't you, so, so now you're on the hook for even more damages. Okay, so you're, you want to be proactive when you're posting things up, even if it's on Facebook, if you've taken a photo and put it up there or on Pinterest or any of the social media platforms, and it's something that your stuff put some sort of yeah. notice. Yeah, it makes a difference to put that copyright notice. And you don't have to have a copyright registration to put the copyright notice. You don't have to talk to a lawyer either. You just put the copyright notice. And it's really simple. You put the circle C, which is that copyright symbol, you put the year that it was published, and by published I mean like posted online, that's publishing, right? Um, and then you put who the owner is, and the owner could be your name personally, or if, if it's actually owned by a company that you work for or that you assigned it to, then you put the name of the company. Okay. And, and voila, there it is. All right. So we're going to go into our news break right now. When we come back with Jason Webb, we're going to be talking about how do you know what to spend money on protecting and what to skip? And how do you make money from your IP? We'll be right back with more from Jason Webb. So what kind of risk taker would you say you are? Uh, I, I'm fairly conservative um, when it comes to taking risks. I like to see the big picture. I like to plan things out. Um, I, uh, you know, I, was that, I was that kid that everyone had to kind of coax on the monkey bars to go forward. Um, a lot of my clients are a lot bigger risk takers than that. Um, you know, you, you, to be an entrepreneur, you've got to be willing to wear all the hats, especially the ones you're no good at, and, um, and get business going and get business started when other people are wondering what kind of craziness you're involved in. And so, um, but I, I think understanding what kind of a risk taker you are is, is really helpful, especially if you're an entrepreneur, um, so that you can figure out, well, how should I, you know, go about building this business? So, and and I'm I'm an entrepreneur too. Um, it's just that when I started my law firm, I, you know, did things really carefully and slowly and methodically. So, do you think that there's some sort of in between between that methodically, the slow, and the I'm just gonna dive right in approach? for entrepreneurs? Because there seems to be both sides of that spectrum. I don't see a lot of in-betweeners. Yeah, yeah I, I, I know, I, I believe that there's a continuum. And so I think that people can fall, you know, anywhere on that list, but, um, or on that, in that space. But, um, 
but I, yeah, I, I tend to see, um, I think most entrepreneurs tend to be the kind that, that you, you know, you're talking about where they are the bigger risk takers. And, um, I think methodical people tend to prefer things that are really safe and secure. I mean, I, the reason that I, um, became an entrepreneur, um, was because the job that I had was, um, felt all of a sudden like it was more risky than doing my own thing. And so if it hadn't done that, then I probably would never have become an entrepreneur. I would have just stayed in a job. Now, for somebody that's considering, you know, they've got they've got a book out, they've got music. They I have a client right now who is looking to get patents on some really cool products and technologies that are out there. Mm-hmm. For somebody that's methodical, right, and at that that slower, more okay, I must do these three steps all in a row, and then these three steps versus the I'm just going to dive right in person. The process, is it a really long process to protect your intellectual property, whether it be trademark and patents and or just copywriting? Well, uh, so each process is a little different. Um, you know, for example, the process to protect your trade secrets is instantaneous because all you have to do to protect the secret is keep a secret, right, and have things in place to, to keep the secret. So... If you have a trade secret and you encrypt the files where the trade secret is, then you now have trade secret protection. So, um, so that can be instantaneous. Most of and 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 the example I gave with my daughter drawing on the wall, that's instantaneous protection, right? But most of the strong protection involves the government in some way, and the government has a monopoly on issuing those rights, and so. You know, you have to go through their process and, and, and wait for them to be ready to, to, you know, do their side of the work. And so it tends to take, for copyrights, it tends to take, you know, six to nine months to get a copyright registration. Uh, for trademarks, about the same amount of time. And for patents, it usually takes about three to five years. And that's just because you've got to follow their process and you've got to wait for them to be ready, you know, on their, on their side. It seems like an awfully long time period to wait to launch something or develop something if you're talking that time period. I mean, three to nine well, months, you're talking years. Well, the rules are designed to allow you to actually start before the registration occurs. And so, for example, with trademarks, the rights that you get six to nine months later date back to the day that you filed the application. And... um and in some ways, patent works the same way too. And so, you know, most of most of what happens in this entrepreneurial world with intellectual property is you decide what you're going to protect, you file your applications. Once your applications are filed, then it's full steam ahead. Let's go. All right. So it's not stopping you from moving forward. You don't have to just sit there and wait and twiddle your thumbs. You can be doing all the things you need to do to begin trying to perhaps make some money off yeah, of your yeah, intellectual and, property? And you should definitely be going forward. You should you should not be waiting um, under most circumstances. Okay, so how do you actually make money from your intellectual property? I mean, it's sort of obvious if you're selling a book or you're selling a piece of music, but are there other ways? Yeah, so uh, once you, you know, when you have intellectual property, then you have the exclusive right to make, use, and sell it. 
and you have the ability to control who's involved in that process and to what degree they're involved. And so if that to you means I just sell it myself and I sell it for whatever price I want, and if someone wants it, they've got to go through me, right, then, um, then, then that's one way to do it. Another way to do it would be to enlist more people, right? So then you could be forming a company, and the company then is the only source. Instead of you being the only source, the company is, and the company can you know, have a bigger sales team and have a bigger uh, reach, and so you can get more sales. So that's one way to do it. Another way to do it would be to license the rights to someone else and, and let them do it. And so then you're sort of sharing the revenue, by when you're licensing, but you're also sharing the work. And and a lot of times you'll license to someone who has something that you don't have. Maybe they have really good sales skills, or maybe they have they already have an in to a particular market segment. You know, they you know, they already sell lots of product to, you know, kids between the ages of eighteen and, and twenty five uh, who are in college, right? Um, and you just don't have that connection. Whereas they it's easy for them to get that product to that market. And so then you'd license it to them, so then they make money, you make money. Um, but again, if you didn't have the intellectual property, then you couldn't license it to them because you couldn't stop them from doing it anyways. All right, so let me see if I have a good example of what you mean by licensing. So like Disney, every time a new movie comes out, or even with all the Star Wars stuff, I'm a major Star Wars fan, you would yeah. see McDonald's or Burger King or somebody saying, you know, in their Happy Meals, whatever it may be, they're having those products or um, mm-hmm. there's a, a glass or a mug with it. So that's a licensing deal. So Disney licenses the image that they created and then everybody gets a piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. So so Disney, as far as I know, doesn't make lunch pails, right, for kids to go to school with. But there's people who make lunch pails. They're really good at making lunch pails. So they do a deal with Disney or with whoever, right? Um, And they license the right to put the characters on the product. They then sell the product through their existing channels, and Disney gets a a percentage, a royalty, off of what is sold, even though Disney's not actually producing it. Um, Disney does, however, have, through the licensing agreement, the right to... um, you have an influence on the quality of the product. You know, anytime you're licensing a brand or characters or something like that, you want to make sure that you have some sort of a control or veto power or something so that they they don't sell junk to people or dangerous things to people. I would imagine that mm-hmm. there's a lot of contractual things that you want in there if you're considering licensing or extending your trademark to, to allow somebody else to use it for some reason. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of terms that are really typical and that serve a really important purpose. I think that's so important. You said they serve an important purpose. Most of the time we look at a lot of these contracts and they go, why is this in here? Really, somebody would do that. But obviously the language is in there. Well, to me, obviously the language is in there because somebody did try to do whatever that language is trying to prevent. Yeah, it's interesting because I have a really good sense about what a typical contract for a lot of different things would include. So when I read through contracts, then um, especially when I see that there's something in there that's out of the ordinary or unusual, usually that's because somebody did something that was just so weird and they ended up having to put it in the contract because they didn't want it to ever happen again. Uh, so sometimes sometimes contracts are sort of like this 
archaeology storytelling of you know what weird things have happened to that company in the past sort of like um mcdonald's having to put on their stuff um coffee is very hot because somebody yeah. put it between their legs and started driving yeah, or or exactly. i used to write technical documentation and this one made me laugh because i used to love to read other people's manuals and things just for fun just mm-hmm. to get ideas and yeah. this when um the um the automatic driving i can't cruise control came out Uh they had to say you must be at the wheel you you can't like just move seats even though it's on cruise control you have to be driving the car exactly exactly and 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 of course that's because someone did that someone thought oh cruise control i can just i can just set it and go and then that ended badly Right. So there is a reason for all of these things to protect yourself. And and that's where, okay, got it. We're going to go into our last commercial break. And and Jason, when we come back, I'd love to have you answer the question, how do you decide whether you register your trademark or copyrights with your name or with a company? We'll be right back. Jason, how do you um, decide whether to register your copyright with your personal name or your company name? So there's several factors you'll want to consider um, when looking into that question. So one of them might be, um, how simple do I want this to be? And and who's actually the one that's making the money off of it, right? So whoever owns the copyright registration is the one that has the exclusive rights. And so if your company is who is selling, let's say you wrote a book or, or something like that, or you have an educational program that you that you that you sell. Um, if the company is the one that's selling it, then unless the company owns the copyright rights, then the company has to license those from whoever does. So if you own it personally, you'll have to have a license agreement with the company, so the company has the right to do it. Um, if you want to keep things simple, then you just put the copyright rights into the company. Then the company doesn't have to license it from anybody, and they can, and the company can do it at once. Um, sometimes people aren't comfortable with that because they think, well, what if something happens to the company? Then I could lose my copyright rights, right, to a creditor or something like that. And so sometimes people will keep their rights personally, or they'll keep them in a holding company, and then they'll license it to the operating company that's actually doing business but that license has sort of a kill switch that says if you ever declare bankruptcy or if you go out of business or, you know, something like that, then the license goes away and then then you can, you know, start a new operating company and license to the new operating company. So, you know, it, it, it all comes down to how simple do you want things to be, how inexpensive do you want things to be, but then on the flip side, how safe do you want things to be? And so they and they tend to be kind of opposing choices. Yeah, it really does sound a little more complicated than you you think it is. You know, what went Mm -hmm. through my mind when I was sort of asking the question was, say you sell your company, and you've put all the copyrights Mm -hmm. in it, but like I've written a book, if I sell my company, now that copyright for that book and all the materials and everything that goes with it goes with the company if I sell it, versus if I had it in my own name. So doing Mm -hmm. more legacy thinking of are you trying to develop a company to sell? Are there all the patents in the company name or in your individual name, and, and where's the value? So it's something that you would need to think about, I'm thinking, based on yeah, what you said. And a, a lot of people start companies with the intention of someday I want to sell this off, right? And so what you'd want to do is you want to make sure that the company owns or has the ability to own 
everything that you think the buyer wants it to have when they buy it. Um, and then and then don't have things inside the company that you think they don't want to buy. You know, sometimes people will have their personal stuff inside the company, and then when they go to sell the company, what if they forget and they sell the company, and now there's personal things in the company that they wish that they had transferred out first. So if you're just careful about, you know, and think ahead on that, then that, that can be really helpful. Okay. So how do you know what you should spend money on protecting and what you should skip? kind of feeds along that same line. Yeah. So so most people who are creative are creative creating things, you know, way faster, way more than what it makes sense to spend, you know, money on lawyers um, and, and protecting. Um, you want to focus on what are the things that you're creating that are central to your revenue streams. So, you know, basically any of the, the short version of that is what do you make money on? What are you making money on or what are you expecting to make money on? Those are the kinds of things that you want to protect. Um, sometimes, though, there are things that you're not making any money on at all directly, but maybe they're a feeder for things that you are making money on. And so if there's like a free ebook that you use and you get 80% of your leads from that ebook, then you certainly wouldn't want someone taking that same ebook and offering it for free to join their program instead of yours, right? Um, and so that might be something that even though you're not directly making any money at all, you still want to get copyright protection on it so you can stop other people from diverting, uh, you know, diverting opportunities away from you. I have a number of clients who, as um, a giveaway to get you to subscribe and get to know them, they yeah. have meditations and and video streams of, of value. So those things you're saying, consider copywriting those. Yeah, yeah, you should definitely consider copywriting those. And one of the great things about copyright, this is not true for the other, uh, the, for patent and trademark, but for copyright and for trade secret, if, if, if you get a copyright registration in the United States, it counts all over the world. Um, if you do trade secret protection and protect your trade secrets, it counts for all over the world. And so you can get worldwide protection really easy for copyright and for uh, for trade secret. For patent and trademark, it's on a per-country basis, so it's it's more complicated. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you, people should definitely be doing copyright and trade secret stuff wherever they can because it tends to be inexpensive and uh, gives you great protection worldwide. Now, I have a lot of listeners all over the world, and so if they had a copyright in their country other than the U.S., does that carry over to the U.S. as well? Is It, it advice- does. It, it does. does. And it, that's through the Berne Convention or the Berne Treaty. Um, pretty much most of, like, 180 different countries or something um, have signed this, and it basically says if you get a copyright registration in your home country, it counts as if you got a copyright registration in all the other countries that have signed the treaty. That's really important to know because somebody putting things up on YouTube and all over the place, the world's gotten a lot, lot smaller. But yeah. patents and trademarks you have to get in each country. If yeah, you... Europe is the only place where you can get a a patent or a trademark that covers more than one country. Um, other than that, yeah, it's it's per country basis. So that can get quite expensive. It can. Yeah, especially with patents. All right, so just out of curiosity, um, 
to get to register a copyright, if how much does it typically cost? So if you do it yourself, the government fee in the United States is either $35 if you're a person or $55 if you're a, a company. If you have a lawyer help you, you're usually planning on spending anywhere from $400 to $800 is pretty typical um, to have that prepared and filed. Out of all the kinds of intellectual property, it's the one you're most likely to do right yourself. And I don't know what those percentages are, but um, I would guess it's kind of a 50-50 shot. So if it's something that's really important for your business, you should have a lawyer do it. If it's not all that important, then maybe filing it yourself is just fine. Or maybe go to somebody the first time, understand the process, and then you can perhaps pick up from there, helping you figure it out kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, so, you know, I've done I've done work for uh, companies that have serial publications, you know, like journals and, and magazines and things like that. And what we've done in those cases is we've done the first several, and then we've helped them build templates so that they can follow our pattern in filing the rest, and then we kind of do a check here and there. So, so that way, it, it's that sort of a hybrid between us doing it and them doing it. But that's because we've got a pattern of, you know, we've got a lot to file. Okay. Um, I've had a number of people reach out to me via email, say, how do we get in touch with Jason if we have any questions? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so my website is a great place to start. Uh, if you go to jpweb.us, and that's jp, like Jason Patrick, and web is with two Bs. And then just remember it's .us, it's not .com. So uh, www.jpweb.us, uh, our phone number is there. Um, my email address is uses that same URL, so it's jason at jpweb.us. You can email me. Um, one of the things that we provide on our website is, uh, if you go to our website, there is a, a little banner at the bottom that says Legal Lifesavers Program or Legal Lifesavers. And that is a, you click on it, you sign up for it, and what you'll get from there is once a month, you'll get an email from us, and it will have something that is useful for entrepreneurs. So the first month, you'll get some uh, non-disclosure agreements and instructions on how to use them, and that's just free. Um, uh, later months, you get instructions and, and, and like a copyright assignment. You get a simple licensing agreement. And it's, it's basically just two years of once a month you get an email that's something helpful. So I love that. I, I've paid a lot of money to a lot of attorneys for those things you just said that if I had known you way back, I could have just subscribed <laughs> and gotten. <Right. laughs> yeah, exactly. That's really great. I love non-disclosure agreements. I, I think they're so useful for when you're in the early stages of developing something. So I think yeah, yeah, extremely helpful. Now, last thought you'd like to leave my listeners with? Uh, I uh, I just uh, I love entrepreneurs, and I I feel like you're you're what makes our our country tick, and uh, and what keeps us going forward. And so I just want to help entrepreneurs be successful. That's really important to me. Since this show is all about questions, is there any question that you ask yourself every day to get you going, or? When you're stuck, move you forward? Um, I ask myself, how can I be helpful to people? So that, that seems to be where I like to fit in. I love that. How can I be helpful? That's such a wonderful question. 
Jason. And and that's not, I would take that to another level. It's not just how can I be helpful to others, but how can I be helpful to myself? I'm learning how to be helpful to myself lately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Say, yeah, same here. Uh, I sometimes forget myself and that's a, a problem. Yeah. So it, yeah. it is a balanced thing. Thank you for being on the show and sharing all of your wonderful knowledge with us. Well, I loved it. I take your questions and, uh, and a wonderful way to, to start the day. Awesome. And remember, everybody, the right questions can change your life. So what questions are you asking yourself today? If you're not sure what questions to ask, reach out to me at laura at laurasteward.com. Have a great day, everyone.